Welcome to the Think Anesthesia Veterinary Continuing Education Podcast. I'm Dr. Elizabeth Martinez, board certified specialist in veterinary anesthesia and analgesia, and U.S. Director of Technical Services at Jurox Animal Health Incorporated. The content of this podcast represents the best in evidence-based and peer-reviewed medicine. Some content may be of the opinion of Jurox Incorporated, a subsidiary of Jurox Proprietary Limited, and its technical services department. As a matter of full disclosure, I need to tell you that I am an employee of Jurox Incorporated, Jurox Markets, Alfaxin Multidose, and Alfaxin Multidose IDX. In this episode, I would like to share a couple of stories on how animals have contributed to the advancement of anesthesia and helped save many lives on the operating table. There are many interesting stories to choose from that demonstrate the role that dogs, rabbits, non-human primates, and other species played in the evolution of both general and regional anesthesia. Here are two of my favorites. My first story begins over 200 years ago. Charles Waterton, a naturalist and explorer, grew up in a large country estate in England. It was there that he developed an interest in natural history, spending many hours studying the birds and animals around his home. When he attended boarding school, he had the reputation of being a bit of a daredevil, sneaking out for bird nesting expeditions and became the school's appointed rat and fox catcher. While at boarding school, he was bitten by a cat. Rabies, at the time also called hydrophobia, was endemic in England but he kept his fears to himself and was convinced for a time that he was going to die raving mad. Because of this event, he was preoccupied with hydrophobia, which will become important later in the story. Following school, he traveled to South America to manage his family's sugar estates. But before leaving England, he had the opportunity to dine with Sir Joseph Banks, a famous explorer and naturalist that told him stories of his special poison the Amazonian tribes used to tip their arrows to immobilize and kill their prey. Banks encouraged him to collect some samples to see if he could see if the poison could be used on larger animals. Banks also gave Waterton some advice to return to England at least every three years for rest and recuperation. The significance of this advice is that Waterton would have likely been back in England at the time that Benjamin Brody was reporting on the immobilizing effect of a South American arrow poison that he called Wurera. In 1811, Brody reported that if he regularly inflated the lungs of a poisoned animal, he used cats and rabbits, the heart would continue to beat and the animal would recover. Brody went on to suggest that it might be useful in the management of spasmodic convulsive disorders, including hydrophobia. So for the next 20 years, living in the region of the Amazonian rainforest, Waterton would make several expeditions to collect specimens of birds and animals. He even developed his own method of taxidermy and preservation of specimens. It seemed likely that Waterton would have known Brody's reports and the mention of hydrophobia when, in 1812, Waterton set off on an expedition into the rainforest and later wrote, the chief object of which was to collect a quantity of the strongest Wurali poison. Now remember that Brody named the poison Wurera and Waterton called it Wurali, At the time, there were about 20 different similar-sounding names that were European attempts to translate the Amazonian word urari, which is the mashup of two words for bird and to kill. Now, the version that would eventually be used, and which most of you are familiar, is curari. But back to our expedition in the rainforest, Waterton's objective was to collect samples of urali from the Makushi tribe, In some reports, it is said that he was even able to persuade the tribe members to show him how they collected the ingredients and made the poison. 
This wasn't easy because the poison was made in great secrecy and ceremony. Waterton collected samples of the poison and tested on small birds and mammals, as well as a large ox. He determined that the dose needed to be adjusted to the size of the animal. The following year, Waterton went back in England and reported his findings to Sir Joseph Banks, the one that encouraged him to test the poison on large animals. Both Banks and Brody were associated with the Royal Veterinary College in London. One day in 1814, Waterton, Banks, and Brody were invited to bring some of the Raleigh to the Veterinary College to continue to explore its use in large animals and for the management of convulsive disorders. Now, three donkeys were used in the Wurali experiment. The first donkey was injected with poison in the shoulder and died within 12 minutes. For the second donkey, a tourniquet was applied to a forelimb and the Wurali injected below the tourniquet. The donkey behaved normally until after an hour, the tourniquet was released. Similar to the first animal, it died within about 10 minutes. This showed that the poison had to gain access to general circulation to be effective. Now the third donkey, a three-year-old female bought from a sweep, was then used. The poison was injected in the shoulder and she apparently died within 10 minutes. However, through a tracheal incision, the lungs were inflated using bellows. After two hours, she held up her head and looked around and the mechanical ventilation was discontinued. She then became immobilized again, so the bellows were used for two more hours. She then rose and began walking around the room. Waterton went on to report that the wound from the injection healed quickly. However, he described her as looking lean and sickly for about a year, but then became fat and frisky. The donkey was sent from London to the English countryside. In his own words, Waterton states that, quote, there she goes by the name Ruralia. Ruralia shall be sheltered from the wintry storms, and when the summer comes, she, she shall feed in the finest pasture, unquote. He went on to state that, quote, no burden shall be, shall be placed on her and she shall end her days in peace, unquote. Aurelia lived another 25 years. After her death in 1839, her obituary, which described her role in the Rurali experiment, was published in the local newspaper. The success of artificial ventilation following Rurali poisoning confirmed the belief that it could be used for the treatment of tetanus or hydrophobia. Waterton's fame in the history of curare was partly due to the resurrection or reanimation of Ruralia. Now, it's important to address what many of you all may already be thinking, and that's the fact that we know it is considered inhumane to immobilize or paralyze a conscious patient. Walton, like many of his contemporaries, believed that curare would kill without pain and, quote, destroy life so gently that the animals would die without the least apparent contention, without a cry, without a struggle, and without a groan, unquote. Thankfully, this belief was debunked, in part by the scientist Claude Bernard in his works on curare, demonstrating motor nerves as the site of action of curare. And in 1876, the Cruelty to Animals Act was passed in British Parliament, which included the prohibition of the use of curare as an anesthetic. My next story involves Dr. Arthur Goodell, a pioneer in the development of modern anesthesia. During World War I, he served in the American Expeditionary Forces in France and was known as the motorcycle anesthetist. He was experienced at providing ether anesthesia and developed the iconic chart that was used to assess depth of ether anesthesia. This chart was used worldwide for decades. Dr. Goodell is also credited for the development of the first cuffed endotracheal tubes. 
he set up a lab in his basement to study the anatomy of the airway. His wife purchased lamb tracheas from the local butcher and began to develop a method to seal the trachea. He was also trying out a carbon dioxide absorption technique developed by a fellow anesthesiologist and friend, Ralph Waters, that used soda lime in the valveless to and fro system. He made his first cuffs by gluing the fingers of surgical gloves and then condoms to the outer wall of the endotracheal tube. He then experimented on where to position the cuff, above, below, or at the level of the vocal cords. Goodell concluded that positioning the cuff just below the vocal cords provided the best seal of the airway. With the help of Waters, the design continued to evolve until they were satisfied and began to exhibit its use. The first demonstrations were actually on human patients. He would fill the anesthetized patient's oral pharyngeal cavity with water following intubation and cuff inflation. He would then remove the fluid using suction prior to extubation. Now, Goodell is well known for performing the dunked dog experiment. The first public dunked dog experiment was in 1928 at the Indiana School of Medicine. He anesthetized, intubated, and immersed his own dog, nicknamed Airway, in an aquarium to prove his inflatable cuff or an endotracheal tube was effective at preventing aspiration. Airway was submerged for about an hour. A to and fro circuit with a soda lime absorption system was used to provide positive pressure ventilation underwater. Following the demonstration, he removed Airway from the aquarium and allowed him to recover. Airway woke up, shook off in front of the audience, and then pranced out of the theater to the applause of the audience. Airway happily lived out his life at the Waters family home. So what led to the decision to anesthetize a loved pet for this experiment? First, he was easily available, and research standards at the time was much more casual. Physicians were often experimenting on themselves, and dogs were often used in laboratory experiments. Goodell, Waters, and the dog named Airway deserve a great deal of credit for their part in developing and introducing cuffed endotracheal tubes and carbon dioxide absorption into clinical practice. As you've just heard, the immeasurable contribution of animal research in the development of modern anesthesia should be acknowledged. A personal thank you to my first dog, Bomber, who nearly 20 years ago was a part of a clinical trial for FDA approval of an anesthetic drug. The care and use of animals and research has come a long way from experimenting on pets or livestock purchased from a town local. From the Cruelty to Animals Act in 1876 to the Animal Welfare Act first passed in the U.S. in 1966, we have a more focused approach in judicious use of animals in research. The three R's, reduce, replace, and refine, are now used as an ethical framework for improving laboratory animal welfare throughout the world. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Think Anesthesia Veterinary Continuing Education podcast series brought to you by Jurox Animal Health. Jurox is committed to improving the quality of anesthesia globally. As a part of this commitment, we have produced a series of educational and race-approved CE content. Be sure to visit thinkanesthesia.education for a listing of our current CE material, including webinars, articles, and podcasts. I'm Dr. Elizabeth Martinez, and remember, when you think anesthesia, think Jurox.